CloudPod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 57, recorded on January 28th, 2020. The CloudPod has a secret. Hey, good evening, Jonathan. How is it going this fine Tuesday evening? Hey, Justin. It's going pretty well. I mean, but it's not January 28th for everybody. Uh, it is not January 28th yet for everybody. It's actually probably past that at this point, because it takes about a week to edit the show. So it'll probably be like January 3rd or February 3rd or so. And that's, that's when people will actually get this. Uh, but, uh, you know, Peter's on vacation somewhere in Asia enjoying himself, I think in Japan, right? And so uh, we had to go scour the world to find someone as... Exciting. And so we have uh, Ian McKay joining us again from Australia. Hey, Ian. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> well, I, I do hope that you are okay, because I know it's a little bit uh, tenuous in Australia these days. So apparently, it's burning down, if I were to believe the news here in the United States. So uh, I, I hope everyone's okay. I hope you're all right and your family is in good hands. Yep, all okay, my side. Good, good. All right. It is the 29th for Ian. It is the 29th for me. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. He is a day ahead, isn't he? How is the future? Does it look good tomorrow? Uh, rainy and overcast. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I'll take it. <laughs> well, we have some general news. Uh, the first one up is uh, Amazon continues to uh, battle the Jedi fight. Uh, they're apparently coming to the dark side as they have now asked the DoD uh, and Microsoft to stop the contract through a uh, stay of motion. Uh, this decision uh, is coming is going to be coming after the first restraining order they filed back in December. Uh, which they're expecting an answer on February 11th. This is a stay to get that done faster because they're not willing to wait until February 11th to be told that they're going to continue on the project. Uh, Amazon had to say, it is a common practice to stay contract performance while a a protest is pending, and it's important that the numerous evaluation errors and blatant political interference impacted the Jedi Award decision be reviewed. AWS is absolutely committed to supporting the DoD's modernization efforts and to an expeditious legal process that resolves the matter as quickly as possible. Uh, So clearly... Amazon's still up that. I don't know why. I mean, it's only $10 billion. Huge money. Huge money. Uh, I did some scouting, and the secret region, uh, that, that, what they recall the secret region, cost $600 million. So by my math, it's about 16 of those. Uh, so yes, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it is. Uh, it is a lot of money. And uh, I'm sure they would love to get this contract uh, turned over to them <laughs> so they can then make that $600 million profitable. Versus uh, money on the books. The secret region, huh? Is that something they built for this, you know, thinking they were going to win this contract, or is that something... That... No, one, no one talks about the secret region, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one the CIA or uh, intelligent community uses. Um, can't really say much about it. <laughs> it's pretty secret. Uh, I mean, I'm sure in Australia you guys are just riveted by this news, by the Jedi contract and all these scandals with American companies and political unrest in the United States. I'm sure it's just riveting for all of you down there. Oh, we're just happy to have a region, to be honest. <laughs> that is really nice. I, uh, many years ago, I wished that we had had a Sydney region. Otherwise, Jonathan and I wouldn't have done this terrible project uh, at some data center down there that was awful. <laughs> so uh, a Sydney region at that time would have been really, really nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to name names, but... Man, that other solution was horrendous. <laughs> yeah, who picked that solution? Who who vendors selected them? I don't know. That guy, suspect. It was it was me. It was me. I'm sorry. It was it was totally Justin. But anyway, was, there wasn't really much to choose from. To be fair, there was not. We wanted cloud, but we didn't want infrastructure that we owned, and so there was only only certain telcos available to us, and uh, it was rough. Well, Australia's been burning down. Amazon's also been having some infrastructure problems in that lovely Sydney region. So uh, apparently they had an outage. Uh, it didn't impact us here in the U.S., so as typical Americans, uh, we didn't really care. But uh, apparently this impacted uh, EC2, ELBs, uh, RDS, AppStream, ElastiCache, Workspaces, and Lambda. So Ian, uh, how was this for you guys? Was it, was it rough? Yeah, there was a lot of chatter on that day for sure. Um, Basically, what we figured out is everything the VPC touched went down at the exact same time. Um, Amazon posted a sort of a partial postmortem during this time where they told us that the data store used by VPC's state um, went down and will uh, will take a few hours to be restored. So a lot of us in Sydney just patiently twiddled our thumbs and waited for that to come up. Does this affect all the availability zones in Sydney? How many are there? Are there two or are there three? There are three in Sydney. Um, infected all three, I believe. Uh, so uh, because state couldn't be retrieved from this subsystem, um, all three of the availability zones 
although running state, so running in EC2 instances would remain running, uh, we couldn't do any management operations, so start, stop, etc. Um, and VPC lambdas were affected as well because obviously they need to be allocated an ENI, which couldn't happen. I mean, what do companies typically do in in Sydney or Australia for you know DR or BCP in this kind of scenario? Is there another region you can go to that is considered protected? Because I assume part of the reason why the data has got to be in Sydney is for um, data sovereignty reasons for banking and government and all those fun reasons. Um, but you know, this is the only region in Australia that seems like a bit of an issue. Yeah, there are some data sovereignty um, issues. Uh, Singapore region is one of our closest regions, and that's usually the de facto. Their uh, data privacy laws are really good. They're actually better than ours. So that does tend to be the de facto region about what's allowed um, for some of these uh, DR situations. Nice. Well, that's a, that's a bummer. Uh, so how long was the outage total for you guys? Uh, the outage total for us would be something along the lines of seven hours. Uh, so, yeah, it's probably the, one of the longest outages we've had in, in a year or two. Um, a lot of people were... Uh, thinking back to the storm of 2016 um, that took out the data plane and everything else. So, um, yeah, a lot of parallels to be drawn from that. Yeah, I was looking for um, a news article to uh, link to this too because uh, I can't deep link to the status page as uh, you found out and I found out. Uh, so I had to go find it. But I, I was searching for it. I kept running into that 2016 uh, power outage. Uh, due to the storm and, and that impact. So uh, that's not a lot of time. And it's definitely uh, problematic when it's your only region <laughs> in, a, in an area that uh, is potentially susceptible to different types of natural disasters. So that's uh, unfortunate. Mm. I think in true reinvent fashion, they'll probably have a 20-minute uh, piece about how they improved the system after this failure because they did the same thing for S3. and um... They've gotten less public about their RCAs, though. They used to be really public about them, and they get published on the web, on their website, and you could go read them, and they'd be really detailed. And I've noticed that most of the last ones in the last year or two, I've had to ask for them under NDA. And so we can't talk about them as much here on the show other than these like very high-level um, rudimentary RCAs, which is really kind of a bummer because uh, you learn a lot of really interesting things about the architecture and what they're doing, and we just can't really talk about it here on the show because of the NDAs we're underneath. That's probably why they don't make it public anymore, I guess. But um, so, so as far as control plane being down, that's that's an interesting issue because I was, I, I, it always annoys me if there's an issue with uh, even Route 53, which which we had recently a few days ago here, couldn't publish any records. But but Amazon still claim that the Route 53 service itself was was still up because it still continued to serve existing resources. So, I mean, are they going to say that EC2 didn't suffer an outage because anything existing was still functioning? Or, I mean, what do you think? What do you think the that their their official answer is going to be when it comes to paying compensation for? Well, to be clear, Amazon never says they have an outage. It's always an API degradation. <laughs> so, <laughs> increased error rates. Increased yeah. error rates or degradation <laughs> has occurred. There's never we never say they're down or out. <laughs> Mm. One of the interesting things we saw was that uh, for VPC-bound lambdas, which we were unfortunately on, the uh, cold start time became you know, up to five minutes in some cases. Uh, but that's not a, an SLI violation because the actual response time was counted on, on the invocation and not the ENI allocation. So <laughs> that's technically not an SLA violation, apparently. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, we had the conversation with them for several years uh, running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we were waiting a very long time for that cold start to get fixed. Have, is actually that rolled out in Australia? Have you noticed if your cold starts have improved? Because they, uh, uh, they gave us a very vague announcement saying it's going to roll out globally over the next few months, which is pretty vague. Well, I've definitely noticed our uh, spin-up times have increased, so I'm pretty sure that's rolled out now. Um, we were on manual warmers for quite some time, so... Uh, I haven't seen much of the stats lately, but um, I believe we're now on that uh, the new system, the new hyperplane ENIs. Well, I hope that, uh, you know, well, welcome to the club. Uh, we, we have US East 1 here, so you guys have apparently Southeast East 2, which uh, is really, unfortunately your only region where we have two others. Uh, but US East 1 is our, our fun region that always goes down and causes us massive amounts of pain. So hopefully it doesn't become a pattern for you. So, Ian, do you think outages like this, which affect the control plane will stop people wanting to adopt services which are, um, you know, I mean, EC2, it runs in the background, it does its thing once it's all set up, but, but do you think people will want to not go all in on serverless if uh, given the risk now? 
I think it definitely sparks a question. I think it's going to be a conversation that we have moving forward about uh, high availabilities. We're talking four nines, five nines. Really have to have this conversation about uh, how available Lambda is or how available service planes can be. And um, is EC2 um, running the, uh, the appropriate cause? And that goes into other uh, conversations like capacity reservations and uh, things of that nature. Does it also bring up the multi-cloud conversation because both Google and Azure have uh, regions in Australia? Does that become now more of a viable solution? And then do you need something like Anthos or Kubernetes and Knative to run those functions? Uh, it does start asking a lot of questions, which is the reason why I think everyone's kind of a race to get as many data centers out there as possible. Because uh, I think it's a question you have to answer now, unfortunately. I, I think we've always had to answer the multi-cloud question, though. Um, and I think I've had a single customer that hasn't talked about it at least. Um, but it's, it's one that we generally answer as uh, if you're going to do it, you should do it native to the cloud provider and not... Uh, so you don't want to go for the, for the least common denominator. You want, to, you want to go and use the native cloud services in, a, in the best cloud you can find. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think, I think the solution should be architected for the cloud of choice and not... Um, not something that is accessible to all three of them, which is not much these days. Yeah, really, I mean, your only common denominator across all of them is, is instances, which means now you're taking on a lot of burden, which you kind of got away with by using Lambda, for example. Uh, if you go to Cloud Run or Knative type solutions, you're now running Kubernetes, you're running this you know, abstraction layer of a sort of platform as a service on top of EC2 or you know, GCP instances, that, it's a lot of management and stress and, and things to deal with. So it, there's always a, a cost to the multi-cloud story, and a lot of people don't understand that until it's too late, unfortunately. Uh, so when you say that you would particularly target multi-cloud with a single provider, do you, you don't mean like an Amazon provider or a, a Google provider. You, are you talking more of a technology that would be a single technology solution set, like Kubernetes? Yeah, something like that. Um, this is where the Terraform versus CloudFormation discussion really comes in as well. So we'll, we'll always have that conversation about whether that's appropriate or not. It's, it's definitely something that we talk about a lot. Yeah, it's really interesting too uh, when you have these outages, you learn how much uh, it's all built on top of EC2 and EBS and S3. <laughs> when those, those three core services die, how everything else suddenly doesn't work either. Uh, you know, having seen the S3 outage where they dumped you know 10 gig traffic to one gig link in the past, and these different things, and you realize it's all a house of cards built on S3. It's uh, it's all a lot of fun. <laughs> it was concerning to see that they actually had to restore the state from a backup, and so it's cool they had backups, right? <laughs> but but um, I guess something had irreversibly corrupted the data in the uh, in the database. Yeah, it's not, not a good scenario in yeah. any means. Oh, all right. Well, I'm sure they'll. Uh, I'm sure you'll get a fantastic under NDA uh, explanation of what happened and uh, what they're going to do to prevent that from happening again, which would be fascinating for those in Australia. Uh, if you are, you can request that NDA uh, RCA from your account rep or your TAM. So do that. Well, maybe we should request the same thing here in the US because presumably they have the same systems in place here as they do there in Australia in that in that region. I mean, sure we can. Again, we can't talk about it here, but we can't. But but, I, if, I but if people are interested, if you want to know, we can definitely ask for it for our account. Yeah, I'm going to do that because the same the same bug may apply to it's a risk everywhere you are. Yeah, it's possible for sure. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to more uh, general Amazon news. Uh, our first story of the night uh, in the Amazon camp is that the Amazon data sync has been updated to support Amazon FSX uh, for Windows file servers. Uh, Amazon data sync helps you move large amounts of data into and out of the AWS cloud. And I think we talked about this in a previous show, but basically this is a, an agent that you install on a VM, either on-premises or in another cloud, uh, that then you point at your local NAS or file system, SIFS or NF, uh, SMB, NFS, uh, and then the agent uses a highly optimized data transfer protocol to move the data back and forth at up to 10 times the speed of open source data transfer solutions uh, to, at the time, was S3, I believe, and the EBS volumes. And now with this new additional feature, they're now adding FSX, which is the Windows uh, file system. So this is uh, pretty nice uh, if you're trying to move an on-premise NAS-type uh, file system up to the cloud and you don't want to move to object storage yet or to something as expensive as EFX or EFS. Um, sorry, you uh, can now do that. Uh, the FSX is supported by both the API and the CLI uh, and is available where DataSync is available, which I don't know if that's available in Sydney, so I will have to 
defer to that to someone else, but uh, it's available if you have data sync. Ten times the speed of open source data transfer solutions. That's that's quite a bold claim. I mean, they didn't say which open source data transfer solutions it is, so I can't really, I can't test it myself to confirm it. Yeah. I mean, up to is up to is an interesting qualifier, right? It could be. <laughs> I mean, depending on uh, if you're next to the physical facility <laughs> and you are using this particular file structure, yes, we will be ten times faster. But uh, average is probably something significantly less than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know uh, we we have like ten gig links across the country and to you know direct connects and things and and to utilize that that amount of bandwidth, TCP is is not a good solution. So perhaps they've got some clever uh, UDP based thing going on there, so they don't have round trip time and window issues and that kind of thing. Yeah, I assume they have something. Uh, I mean, like we we actually use a commercial product called Aspera. Um, for similar use cases where we don't want to use SFTP to move large amounts of data from our customer sites to data centers and whatnot and move that data around. Um, and Aspera has you know, kind of the same thing, multi-threading and you know, capability to do combining of different streams to get the fastest performance. But uh, I, I don't know what open source technology that uses under the hood, but it's a, it's a pretty nice product. So if this is the same type of technology, it's uh, probably pretty quick. So, Have you any use cases for data sync, uh, Ian? I've used something similar um, on a previous engagement when you're doing mass migrations, um, in, particular, in particular of Windows machines. Uh, so it, it, had this been around at the time, it would have been really good. Um, I think we did use uh, Storage Gateway with cache volumes at the time, uh, which is um, a bit less performant and requires a bit more planning and infrastructure, um, especially when you're going through uh, Direct Connect for your uh, data transfer. Uh, you have to do some... Uh, Interesting traffic management there, but yeah, this is um, this is a great solution. Um, I think it's deployed the same way as well. So you have a VMware machine image or similar um, that you just deploy, and then it's um, it's its own appliance. Yeah, the uh, the storage gate was pretty nice for people who need it. Um, it does present a CIFS file share on premise, but then it it basically takes the data and converts it into some type of S three object that it stripes across multiple S three objects in the back end. Um, or the other really common use case of seeing a storage gateway is uh, VTL for backup media. So if you want to take uh, something like uh, Net Backup and point it at a VTL solution, you can point it at the storage gateway and then get those tapes, images up to the cloud, which is really the least uh, helpful way I want to have my backup stored in the cloud. But for some people, it's a nice plug and play into their existing infrastructure. I think we're still missing like a, a middle ground here. So it's it's great you can move all these stuff up to AWS. Or you can leave your stuff in the data center or, or access it there over a VPN. So what I'd really like to see is like a really good migration tool where you can sort of say, this is my endpoint and get the objects from here if they don't exist in the cloud yet. But uh, keep, on, keep on moving them to AWS. And if they, if they are in there in AWS, then let's get them locally instead. So some, some kind of seamless way of uh, synchronizing files. How would this not meet that need? Because this it's like a it's like a one time operation, isn't it? No, no, it's continuous. You can run it all the time. Oh, you can do either, as far as I know. Yeah, it's one. You, yes, that's true. You can either do a one time scheduled uh, time to do one time sync, or you can keep it in continuous replication mode, and the agent will just run all the time. Yeah, well, if you've got like petabytes of data or something, and and you want to access that an object that hasn't been replicated yet, you know, you still have to go back to your original location to get that. Well, I mean, you definitely have to write some code. You can't just go to DataSync and have it figure that out. I've got it taken care of. What is yeah. this? Well, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> can't have everything, Jonathan, at once. Baby um, steps. I want my cake and eat it. All right. Uh, well, if you uh, have had a burning desire to have T3 instances uh, on dedicated single-tenant hardware, uh, you can now do that. Uh, T3 instances, of course, are a burstable uh, pricing model-based EC2 instance for general purpose workloads. They're low cost uh, with access sustainable full core performance when needed. Um, EC2 dedicated instances, of course, are uh, run on a single tenant hardware. They provide physical isolation from instances that belong to other AWS accounts. And AWS customers use a dedicated instance to further compliance goals and use them to run software that's subject to license or tenancy restrictions. Uh, Amazon is now making this available for all seven sizes of the T3, uh, from nano to 2x large, and all 14 regions, including Sydney. And this allows you to get the benefits of dedicated hardware, as well as the AVX512 instruction set and other advanced features of the Intel Xeon scalable processors. And these are all nitro-backed instances with up to 5 gigabits of network bandwidth. Um, so I'm a little confused on one part of this announcement, uh, which is that T-series instances typically have a burst credit. Uh, and, and T3s, by default, they're enabled with uh, their default is unlimited bursting mode. Um, so you basically get a CPU credit for the time the system's idle, and you get a maximum 
and then you burn that credit down, and then if you're, if you're unloaded, you can pay for extra credits um, so you don't kill performance on your box. But if the box is already dedicated to me, <laughs> I don't know why I care about bursting and this whole concept at all. And you're already paying a premium price for the dedicated instance um, as well. So it's a, it's a little weird to me, that part of it, but the rest of it makes perfect sense to me that this is something people wanted to do and, and had a need for. Um, the barrier to entry, I, I mean, we did some Googling about this earlier because the, the, the cost for dedicated instances used to be significantly higher, like five times higher. It used to be 10 yeah, US dollars per AZ that you had dedicated um, instances running in. So I, uh, the fact that it's so cheap now makes me think that um, it makes sense to still go with, with uh, T3 instances which burst and you so you pay your $2 an hour to have the dedicated hosts and now you're still only paying $0.04 cents an hour when it's doing nothing or $0.08 cents an hour when it's, when it's full on. So I, I can kind of see why. Um, but the, the types of workloads that would require like dedicated instances doesn't seem in line with you know, T3s that just sit there doing nothing most of the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Justin. I think it's more in line with the uh, compliance goals. Like it says, it's when... People say you must do this, and if you're really only running some tiny box that's doing some tiny task, then you want the best bang for your buck, I guess. Um, but the burst, like you said, the burst limits is really quite strange. It's like you're going to burst into yourself um, in a way, or is this somehow trying to manage the the physical host CPU lifetimes or something? It's just a theory. I doubt that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird. I mean, I always thought the T3 and T2. Instances were their way of selling like these little tiny slivers of hardware that they had left over from other clients for paying for the big boxes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I mean, to me, it's like a bin packing Lego exercise or a Tetris. You know, you're trying to you're trying to fit all the inst types into the different server available. And they're like, well, we have these like weird, you know, two gigabit to four gigabit windows. Like, well, we'll create an instance and then we'll make it so you can't blow out the performance and blow everyone else up by doing this unlimited credit thing. That's that's always how I believed it came to be. I have no inside knowledge on this, but. Uh, it doesn't fit my narrative of how it worked. So that's no. why I probably don't like it. And I think the weirdest thing is when you choose to, to, to run on a dedicated instance, you don't get to pick the size of the host that you run on. That's I mean, true too. You, you may end up running this, this T3 on, if, they, if the only spare thing they have on that particular instance was, you know, I got 96 cores, then that's, that's a great deal for you. <laughs> Not so much for AWS. So yeah, I mean, maybe if maybe you could pick the size of the hosts, the dedicated instances we're running on, it would it would make more sense. Well, I feel like if you wanted this use case, why wouldn't you just go get a T3 metal server and then run your own hypervisor on top of it? You get the same benefits without the overhead of everything else. Yeah, I guess you know the, the advantages of, of having the the EC2 API to manage everything with instead of having to roll all that stuff yourself. It's a weird one. I don't I don't quite get it. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, uh, Amazon Guard Duty has uh, added uh, some new threat detection enhancements uh, that will reduce alert volume and increase your accuracy of your common customer deployed architectures. And so if you read through this article, basically uh, they're saying that now with the large amount of customers using GuardDuty, uh, they've been able to identify very large patterns of uh, typical architectures that customers use. And so they identified the ones that produce high volumes of security alerts, and then they've now taken a process to basically combine them or reduce them to a 50% reduction. Uh, so they can find less uh, port probes, SSH brute force attempts, and indications of DNS exfiltration. Uh, and these enhancements are deployed across Amazon regions globally. And, uh, for example, the uh, latest example of guard duty continues improving security value while decreasing the costs and operational overhead for customers. So uh, this is a great improvement that you're just getting out of the box for free with guard duty, a reduction in your alerts based on what they've learned and how they've seen noisy particular activities that they can now filter out for your benefit or automatically block so you don't get impacted by them. That's really cool. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about this because there's nothing worse than getting so many alerts that you just pay attention to none of them. Yeah, I feel like having publicly facing instances, you'll 
definitely see some of these attacks and uh, it feels to me like they're identifying these common attack threads and just ignoring them because um, that's just what is on the internet. Um, you kind of have to expect that sort of thing. I think any server I've ever had, and if you you know watch the packets coming in, the things being blocked by the firewall, it's it's amazing the amount of noise that exists out in the internet. And then there are certain things when you know they knock on the server and they sign it's an Apache server, then they have other automations that they run against you that are, you know, if you're on a certain version of Apache, it don't matter because you've already patched that bug. And so why why alert you if they already know these things? So there's definitely also machine learning that can be applied in the security space that uh, will make a SOC team's life much much easier. So this is nice to see. Yeah, it'd be nice if there be if there was a solution to kind of start blocking things upstream, even for consumers, because I mean I've, I've got a pretty decent internet connection here at home, but I, if I packet capture on the the internet side of my router, there's probably a good couple of megabits a second on a bad day of people trying to port scan or or uh, you know log into something or whatever the case may be. It's it's um it's it's horrendous. What a waste. It'd be it'd be good if I could actually kind of signal upstream to say, hey, just block block these somewhere else don't don't even bother sending sending me these packets be nice if your isp would take care of that stuff too <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's really not really amazon's fault in this particular case uh, maybe maybe uh, our isp should do a better job but uh, they do, they provide me gigabit internet to my house on fiber and it's very fast and so i don't mind <laughs> i'll take the one or two megabits of, uh, <laughs> of noise i filter out the firewall <laughs> Uh, well, Amazon uh, RDS has released a new feature to do snapshotting to or snapshot exports uh, to S3. Uh, so you can now export RDS or Aurora snapshots to S3 as Apache Parquet, uh, which is an efficient open columnar storage format for analytics. Uh, Parquet is two times faster to export and consumes up to six times less storage than Amazon S3 compared to other text formats like JSON. Uh, and then you can analyze the exported data with Athena, EMR, or SageMaker. Uh, or if you are running your own Spark cluster on-premises, you can use it there or you know, even export it to BigQuery. Uh, on Google if you are looking for that opportunity. Uh, and you can create the export via the CLI, SDK, or the RDS management console for those of you who like to point and click. Yeah, this is a super fantastic uh, new feature. Uh, the six times less storage is great and a big money saver if it's uh, if those numbers add up. Um, and having the data accessible in Parquet means we can do these, these queries in Athena on direct database extracts. So if you're looking for uh, perhaps a particular customer's record or something like that. You could do that with an offline uh, backup rather than having to mount an entirely new server and then go digging and you know, all that. They could equally compress the text um, that they export in, in, uh, you know, from RDS traditionally, but they just don't right now. But, but I guess Parquet does support uh, native compression. So, yeah, it's a good, it's a good marketing thing. There's obviously some use cases where if you have a very read-oriented database structure or something, you know, certain use cases where you don't really need RDS, where maybe you have like a batch job that actually writes to RDS because it's easier to do the batch processing and the writes that need to. And then once you kind of set the data up overnight, export that out to S3, and then you can scale that out across multiple regions very, very quickly. Um, so you can actually use that data set in some interesting ways. But uh, I haven't played with it enough to know for sure, but I could see some use cases that might make sense for this type of solution. Yeah, and the import back to RDS would also be nice. <laughs> that, I mean, that would definitely be nice. <laughs> the uh, Amazon has released an IAM policy simulator update that now lets you simulate permission boundaries. Uh, with IAM policy simulator, you can now simulate those boundaries against uh, permission policies to better understand the effective permissions for IAM principles, either users or roles, in your Amazon environment. Uh, additionally, developers can now use the policy to simulate to debug issues related to permission boundary policies. And via the policy simulator in Evan, you can create a permission boundary policy, assign it to the IAM principle with existing IAM policies, and then simulate an AWS service action to evaluate the impact of the permission boundary policy on the principle's effective permissions for the simulated AWS service. So in layman's terms, <laughs> I can test my new policy without removing the old policy and actually see what the differences are going to be, which is fantastic. <laughs> so uh, very confusing wording, but a uh, really great feature for the policy simulator. Uh, one of the things I've wanted for a long time was the ability to say, okay, what if I just want to add this one little thing? Uh, what does that do? And, and the way to do that before was you had to create a whole new policy and attach it and then test again, and then it was much more complicated to do these tests. So this is a nice improvement. I, I think the significant thing about about this is that you know IAM permissions are defined by whoever creates the IAM roles, whereas the permission boundaries can be defined at the organization or the account level by you know, an administrator 
And so then the effective permissions are like the intersection of those two policies. So you, you can still give engineering teams the ability to create their own IM policies to do what they need to do, but then you can also have kind of overreaching policies which say, but you can't do this. Whatever you, whatever you put in that policy, you can't do this. So it's it's really cool. And I can see the frustration in trying to debug things. We've tried to debug the, the same kind of things. <laughs> and it's taken it's taken hours because you just don't... It, it's invisible to you. Um, and I think what would also be nice is if when you get a denied message back when you're trying to uh, complete an API action is if it actually said, hey, this is denied because of a permissions boundary or this is denied because it does not include in your IAM policy. But yeah, this is, this is definitely really good. Visibility into IAM is super important, especially now it's getting more and more complex. Yeah, the IAM ecosystem is definitely getting way more complex with uh, a lot more conditions coming in, with permission boundaries, with uh, multiple levels of assume roles that's... Um, that's recommended in our environments now. So a tool like this is very handy. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the assume role thing. You can you can voluntarily take less permissions than the role that you're assuming would actually give you, which is uh, I have yet to see an actual use for it, which makes anything more secure because, you know, if if you were to be compromised, then you know, the person who compromised you just would choose not to lower their permissions when they assume the role. So <laughs> I, I think at some point you, we take uh, least privilege a little bit too far. I see that feature where you can assign less roles to a session um, being used in a lot of uh, automation where you're assigning specific roles uh, with some custom logic that you you give to users or actions or machines. Um, That's where I see that being used. Yeah, I'd like to see it used in um, change management as well because you, know, you could give somebody permission to turn off an instance or reboot an instance or do something but but when it comes to change management you may want to say but yeah but you can only reboot this one instance at this time rather than giving you know, broad permissions to reboot all instances it could potentially help reduce mistakes and uh, keep it up time up fantastic the last Amazon uh, story for the week is an uh, update on the Amazon Linux uh, AMI end of life so this is for Amazon Linux uh, version 1 or just Amazon Linux uh, originally, this was uh, launched in September 2010, and it was going to turn 10 uh, sometime in September 2020, but uh, it was going to be killed in June, unfortunately, because Amazon was cruelly going to murder it uh, just shy of its birthday, which is kind of sad. But Amazon has reconsidered and decided they wanted to celebrate its 10th birthday, and so they have now decided they will uh, kill it in December uh, 31st of 2020, and then they will go into a reduced maintenance support mode after that until June of 2023. This reduced support mode will now provide critical and important security updates for a reduced set of packages, and there will be no guarantee of support for new EC2 platform capabilities or Amazon features. Uh, the packages that are for sure going to be updated are the Linux kernel, the low-level system libraries such as glibc and OpenSSL, and popular packages that are still in support state and their upstream sources, including MySQL and PHP, uh, and they will be announcing further packages that they will continue to update later on this year. Uh, but this is nice if you uh, have been putting off moving off of Amazon Linux 1, uh, to Amazon Linux 2, you now have a little bit more time. Uh, and this this message is for Ryan, who's listening. Uh, you should probably get on this, because I think you're not supporting Amazon Linux 2 yet. <laughs> Savage. <laughs> <sighs> uh, yes, that's a good one. Uh, any, any Amazon Linux 2 or 1 uh, feedback for you guys? Well, I, I've only used Amazon Linux 1 so far because it's just, well, laziness mostly. Uh, yeah, I'm actually not sure that CloudPod is on a Amazon Linux 1 or 2 instance. I have to go... Uh, look at that, because it's been a while since I built it. But uh, it's something, it's a project that I can now do between now and uh, now and later. Yeah, the, the thing that do. surprised me the most here is um, I can't believe it's been ten years. <laughs> I mean, that was that was kind of my comment too. And I have I have marked it on the Clapot calendar that we will be celebrating uh, the birthday on the June thirtieth or September. <laughs> in, in September, we'll be celebrating the birthday. So we now have it recorded for prosperity's sake, and we will have a party. But all of our friends. So, yeah, then the, uh, the, I'm kind of actually shocked that Amazon Linux 2 is uh, three years old already because uh, wow. I, I was I, I thought I swear that just got announced last year. <laughs> it's because we're having so much fun right now. You know, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, well, back to uh, Azure. That's where we're going to right here a little bit. I found, the, I found where the Azure hit all the updates. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's nothing worthwhile that we're going to talk about today, but uh, I was just there's a there's a new button that I had to push. Then it gives me kind of like they're more lightning around type updates, like hey, this is now available in more regions, uh, which is fine. But 
Yeah, okay, good. Well, that makes me feel a little better because I thought they died or something. Really <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. But, but, that, but they're not pushing those things out to the RSS feed, so that's, that's bizarre. Uh, so they're apparently not writing blogs about any of their announcements, but they have this new uh, Azure Updates button. I just noticed here while I was talking on the show that they have uh, some very small lightning round type updates. Things as exciting as an uh, upgrade to a new solution for Azure Monitor for virtual machines, uh, which now says the new solution for Azure Monitor is now available in mul- multiple regions. Uh, and then there's cooler things like Azure Data Factory available in South Africa. Uh, really not stuff that we would talk about anyways would be in the lightning round if we covered it at all. So we haven't really missed anything that I see. Um, but uh, I'll look through this and uh, we'll have more about day next week for Azure since apparently they decided to move the stuff and not tell anybody. <laughs> so, there you go. Thanks. Thank you, Azure. Appreciate that. Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities, or custom integrations. And maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Bloomadora introduces Bindplane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. Bindplane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. Remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic, or Azure Monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations, all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting bluemedora.com slash cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes, and as a bonus for CloudPod listeners, Blue Medora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. Buy and plain. Seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data. Google always has something going on, either guest posts or new features or new beta features or new beta alpha features uh, that we don't talk about. But they have several new GA features, so that's always a win. And the first GA generally available feature is the the new data proc feature, uh, which extends data science and machine learning capabilities for you. Uh, this will apply for the auto-scaling of notebook support. So if you're using Jupyter Notebooks, uh, they now support auto-scaling of the back-end workers uh, for your machine learning and data science needs. They have some new logging and monitoring enhancements for Spark R job types. Uh, they now support accelerators uh, for GPUs. And they now allow you to schedule cluster deletion, which is my favorite type of scheduling, delete all the things. Uh, if you're using Dataproc, which is probably the worst name Google feature of all of them, because I never remember what this is, uh, you now have some new capabilities to go play with. That auto-scaling notebook support sounds like a direct answer to the SageMaker notebooks that was announced in reInvent. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and and uh, also Databricks. So it's, a, it's an attack on Databricks and on Amazon to get future parity. I'm sure people uh, in the machine learning sites were saying, SageMaker looks pretty good without these things. I only recently um, started playing with notebooks. Uh, I was having some nightmarish time trying to do something on my Mac after I broke Python significantly. And I thought, great, I can just install notebooks. Amazing. Totally amazing. It's totally changed my life. <laughs> like I, 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 <laughs> I was say, like, you're, you're a guy who I could see would love notebooks. So I'm actually surprised it's taken you this long to get here. Uh, I, I just, I just d- didn't realize quite how easy it was to use. Yeah, it, it is pretty impressive. Even even a guy like me can figure out Python notebooks pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, and do some pretty neat little visualizations without a lot of work. How about you? Have you done anything with notebooks, uh, Ian? Just some uh, AI ML sort of experiments. Um, I think notebooks is really good to swap and change the uh, virtual environment in Python. That's what I personally use it for. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, same here. After I, after I broke my uh, my local install. <laughs> So if you uh, are using these new notebooks and you've kind of come up with your machine learning or data science uh, capabilities you want to go test and now run on a worker farm, uh, Google's made that cheaper for you. Uh, They have made the NVIDIA T4 GPUs uh, less expensive by about 60%, making it the lowest cost GPU instances available on the Google Cloud. Uh, So previously, for example, the on-demand pricing for the T4 GPU was about $0.95. It is now $0.35, and then it goes down from there with... Uh, you know, commitments and preemptible capacity for spot market stuff. Uh, so with savings on average of 62-ish, 62.5-ish percent, uh, which is pretty nice. Uh, Ian, who, uh, bonus points for guest host who added show notes, has it added in here. The Amazon equivalent to this is the G4DN X-Large, uh, which costs about 52.5 cents per hour. Or, uh, yeah, 52, uh, 52.6% 
uh, per hour on demand. So this is cheaper than Amazon's equivalent box, which is nice as well. So again, if you're using NVIDIA T4 GPUs, you are uh, going to get a nice price cut on Google. Feels like a price war is alive and well. That that new G4 type was only announced in September last year, so um, there's definitely a competition to the bottom there, which is really good for consumers and us. So yeah, I mean not, for us, it's I'm not fantastic. complaining. <laughs> Yes, I will, I will take that every day of the week. Yes, please beat each other up. Now, if you could only beat each other up on network pricing, <laughs> that'd be really helpful. That'd be nice. I remember when they announced that because we, we joked around about how expensive they must be and because they only rolled them out in one or two regions to begin with. Yeah, well, and, they didn't, and then originally when this first came out, we couldn't find pricing, if you remember. Yeah. Um, it wasn't in the blog post. It wasn't in the pricing sheet. And uh, I had forgotten to have a follow-up item to look for it, but uh, they did finally announce pricing, which was pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, but now much, much cheaper. So but, I mean, Nvidia must be getting the uh, them out faster now too, which is lowering the cost per unit. Eleven cents an hour though for the preemptible, you know, stress, you know slash uh, spot type instances is, I mean, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that's a really good price if yeah. you're doing any type of machine learning workload. Spot is really the way to go, anyways, because these things spin up and spin down. They do one job, then they go away. They don't need to live on for a long time. I think preemptible is the best way to run them. Yeah, the Bitcoin miners must be getting bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how they perform for Bitcoin mining. I bet they perform pretty well if you're willing to pay the price. So BigQuery has a bunch of updates for January. They uh, typically roll these all up into one blog post, which they did again here in January. Uh, the new set of features will run through very quickly, uh, which you can now apparently use with your RDS export we talked about earlier. The uh, federated query support for Apache ORC and Parquet files in cloud storage from BigQuery uh, the new feature joins other federated query capabilities within BigQuery, including storage systems like Cloud Bigtable, Google Sheets, and Cloud SQL, plus the Avro, CSV, and JSON file formats. Uh, so if you're trying to do data analysis across different file formats and different systems, you can take your Parquet files and combine them with a JSON file and do lookups and, and do different things like that, which is pretty nice. It's a pretty powerful feature if you've used BigQuery. Um, I highly recommend it. It's pretty great. They did give you an example project uh, to play with, uh, which is all about uh, about 2 million movie recommendations. Uh, so there's quite a big data set that you can go play with and uh, have fun with. Uh, they have a new data transformation with BigQuery machine learning. Uh, this new feature of machine learning allows you to pre-process and transform data with simple SQL functions. In addition, because BigQuery automatically applies those transformations at the time of the predictions, the productization of machine learning modules is greatly simplified. Uh, you can all now soon use a bin data with bucketized technique, uh, which takes continuous values like latitude and longitude into discrete bins. And you can now quickly analyze metadata with information schema to assist in identifying the types of data you have uh, before you start working with it. Uh, and you can also now partition your tables by an integer range and leverage table decorators to work with specific partitions. All really great enhancements to BigQuery if you're using it. I wish I was using it because that all seems very interesting. <laughs> I would say it's it's much easier than Athena <laughs> in many ways, uh, which is nice. Is it still like a proprietary language, or is it um, a standard query language? I mean, it, it's maybe a standard. I don't, I don't. This isn't my world, so I I dabble only, Jonathan, okay. <laughs> in the, in the uh, machine learning AI space. I, I don't call myself an expert by any stretch. Yeah, uh, but uh, so it may be a standard. I just don't know. I mean, it looks kind of very SQL-like, but I just don't know if it is, is SQL. I mean, the SQL when they talk about SQL functions and things like that, that is very typical, you know, standardized SQL. Uh, but like some of this more specialized things you can do, I don't know if that's a BigQuery um, nomenclature or DSL, or if that's it's a common runtime type thing. I don't know. Uh, we talked about uh, Google buying AppSheet, uh, and we talked about you know that's kind of their entry into low code, no code, which is apparently the big rage these days in all the cloud providers. Uh, but apparently Google already had a low-code solution uh, called AppMaker, uh, and apparently they've now decided because they bought AppSheet, which is better, uh, they'll be killing uh, AppMaker <laughs> on January 19, 21st. Uh, so Killed by Google uh, on Twitter has a new item to add to his list. Uh, this will be shut down in phases. Effective January 27th, all development on AppMaker is done. So if you had a bug we were waiting for get fixed, sorry, it won't be fixed. On April 15th, they will uh, remove the ability to create new apps with the AppMaker. Uh, but you will be able to edit and deploy existing apps until the plug is pulled in January 19th of 2021. Uh, Google attributed the decision to shut down the service to low usage, but uh, that likely is a lie, as it's most likely related to we bought something better, and we're not going to waste our time with this garbage. <laughs> There's obviously no migration path here either. No, why would they give you a migration path? What would you need that for, Ian? They'll just, they'll just say basically low usage is why we don't need a migration path, so that's how. It's Google. I mean, they, they really don't give you a lot of options. Kill RSS readers, kill... Other good, fun features, just dead. So. They're killing cloud prints as well, which I'm most pissed about, but yeah. Yeah, the cloud print was kind of a bummer. I like that feature. Yep. Uh, well, hopefully a feature they don't kill because uh, there'll be a lot of sad people. They have announced the new Google Cloud Secret Manager. 
the Secret Manager is a new Google Cloud service that provides a secure and convenient method for storing API keys, password certificates, and other sensitive data. Uh, there are several features for this that I think are kind of awesome. The first one is they use global names and replication. So secrets are project global resources, meaning if you set the uh, password for a SQL database uh, in a project, it'll be available across the entire globe for that resource uh, for databases. So you can use it to cross region barriers without having to replicate those secrets across different regions. Uh, which you do in AWS Secret Manager, for example. And this is really helpful for when you want to uh, control where that data is being stored. There's first-class versioning of secrets, uh, so you can actually uh, make this immutable data and reference it by the version. It does follow principles of least privilege. Uh, only project owners have permission to access secrets. Other roles must successfully be granted permissions through Cloud IAM. There's, of course, an audit log, as all good security things need. Uh, and you can adjust these logs into anomaly detection systems to spot abnormal access patterns and alert on possible security breaches, all from security uh, features that Google provides. And then they have strong encryption guarantees, including data in transit with TLS, and it rests with AES-256 encryption. And it is uh, VPC service control aware, uh, allowing you uh, to use your contacts or access control systems uh, that are pretty popular in the Google world. Uh, it is also significantly cheaper than AWS. <laughs> Google is crushing that price at uh, $0.06 cents per secret per month versus Amazon's $0.40 cents per secret per month, uh, which means that I expect Amazon to lower their price, hopefully, if this pricing war continues. I'll be really happy about that. It does look like the feature set is at least at parity with Amazon. So good work, Google, on this one. I don't think I mean, Amazon doesn't have the global feature, right? I mean, that's so. I mean, if you want to have a secret that you share across multiple regions, uh, you have to actually store it multiple times yep. <laughs> at forty yep. cents Once per secret month. So you're paying basically uh, every region. You're paying forty cents versus Google. You're paying six cents for all regions. That's that's a huge price advantage. That VPC service controls is. Pretty interesting as well. That's uh, that's something that Amazon doesn't have, unless you use, I guess, Private Link. If they have that, um, but yeah, that's that's a very interesting feature. Yeah, their entire um, access model they use for temporary access and attribute-based access models and you know plumbing network paths as you need them. Uh, and Google is is really cutting edge stuff. I I really impressed with that and their whole model behind it. Um, that I would love to see make it to other clouds in the future. So, can you explain to me, because I, I, this whole secret manager thing, I, I understand something, a product like Vault, for example, where it will actively create credentials which you can use temporarily and then tear them down again. So, what, what's, what, what does a, a secrets manager type solution, especially a 40 cents a secret or even 6 cents a secret do that I can't do with object storage? Like, why can't I just drop a secret into a bucket somewhere? and give people the appropriate permission to read the secret. It's already versioned. Object storage is natively versioned. What's, what's the bonus here in calling it secret manager instead of just... Well, at least in the Amazon one, it actually will it'll actually handle the key, the secret rotation for like RDS. Um, I didn't see that as the part of the feature list for Google. I don't, maybe that's not part of it yet. Uh, but you know, that's the big reason why you'd want to use the secrets manager from AWS. And they actually talk about on AWS that if you just need what you're talking about, which is a very simple secret, you're going to, you just use parameter store for that. Uh, but if you want this automatic rotation and all that kind of stuff, that's where you use Amazon secret manager, uh, at the end of the day versus, uh, parameters. So, and that's a little bit confusing on the Amazon side because they have both. I think the other big, uh, call out is that, uh, Amazon secrets manager is FIPS 140-2, um, certified. Um, whereas I don't think you'll find the same thing with uh, those other solutions. Hmm. Or at least that's their advertisement anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I guess it's just uh, somebody's bothered to certify it, whereas the other solution is probably equally as secure but just not being certified. And I also think the secrets manager is directly tied into a KMS. Uh, I think that's the other difference about it. But I, I had to go back and look at the notes. You can back uh, KMS secrets um, with secrets manager. Well, yeah, you can use the same sort of uh, identity um, keys there, which is very interesting. Um, it's handy for those sort of encryption contexts. Google has uh, partnered with Forrester uh, to apparently tell us four ways that Anthos is delivering ROI to their customers. Uh, and I will tell you that this article makes me angry. <laughs> Just frankly, it's... Uh, it's it's positioned as this great story about why Anthos is amazing. Uh, you know, it implies that the ten thousand dollar a month uh, with a twelve month commitment uh, doesn't impact the ROI too badly, of course. Uh, but of course, Forrester has probably paid for this study, <laughs> so by Google. Uh, the study is called the uh, Total Economic Impact Impact of Anthos Study. 
Uh, and basically, foresters are reporting that customers adopting Anthos can achieve up to 4.8x return on investment within three years. Uh, they have very, they have quite a few numbers here that I like to point out why they're BS and why this article makes me angry. <laughs> and so the first one being that they say that they will streamline your operational efficiency uh, by reducing the time spent on platform management by 40 to 55 percent and 58 to 75 percent faster app migration. Let me translate that for you guys. Uh, that means that they're saying Kubernetes is hard <laughs> and that Google Kubernetes uh, with Anthos is going to make that easier for you, which is a true statement, which has always been a statement of EKS and AKS and GKE. You take away some of the management, it gets easier. So Anthos isn't really adding anything to that story other than I have the same version of that across all of the data centers or all of the AWS clouds and Azure clouds that I have out there. And then 58 to 75% faster app migration, uh, that's just because moving containers is easier <laughs> than moving a server. Uh, so the first couple, I'm like, well, we're already off to a bad start. <laughs> the next one is that the accelerated development uh, velocity and increased developer productivity uh, projected reduced non-coding time by 23 to 38% uh, due to environment agnostic technology like Cloud Run, Serverless, Anthos Service Mesh, Anthos Config Management, and Anthos GKE, and a 13x improvement to time to market. This one might, I might agree that Anthos gets this for you, but again, these are also things you get with GKE <laughs> and you get natively on top of AWS. Um, so this one is a little bit weak, uh, but probably the most, the strongest point they made of all four of them. And then the next one is a consistent unified security policy creation and enforcement across environments. The benefits of a single UI and API surface consistent and unified policy to save security operators 60 to 96% of their time on deployment tasks. Now, deployment tasks uh, for a security person are basically dealing with alerts from the build pipeline that your container is unsecure. Again, this is not an Anthos feature, <laughs> but Anthos is taking credit for it. And then the last one is a approved customer advocacy and retention for Lyft and the top line revenue by reducing application downtime 20 to 60% in the organization and easier to sell. And uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but if you have a service that stays up a lot more than your competitors, you can sell more of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, Google. <laughs> I didn't know if you knew that. I just, but Anthos will help you do that because, again, Kubernetes and containers are scheduled and they're easier to keep up and running. Uh, so I ranted about this on Twitter <laughs> yesterday when I was writing the show notes. Uh, so you might have seen that if you're following me on Twitter. Uh, but uh, overall, uh, I mean, I appreciate the effort, but I don't know that this was the sell that I needed for Anthos to convince me that this was the right thing to do. <laughs> so sorry. Sorry about this one. Yeah, the, the funny thing is like three nines downtime, which I think is pretty much what everyone's kind of aiming for is... Uh, how many how many hours has, is, how many hours is that now? I forget. I'm just going to ruin my whole point. Twenty uh, percent of three nines downtime, or even six percent of three nines downtime, is so insignificant. It's it sounds impressive, but but when it comes down to it, we're talking about minutes. Yeah. So ninety nine point nine percent, which is the three nines, is uh, forty three minutes a month of downtime. Forty three minutes. So so essentially forty up. The, the delta we're talking about here is down to like thirty five minutes up to. Okay. So yeah. basically insignificant. In insignificant. But uh, I mean, I, I, I do agree with some of their contentions, right? Like managing Canative and managing uh, service mesh and all those things. Like that's hard. And so that's, that's definitely nice to have it all kind of bundled into Anthos. And you do get that control tier, but um, that's really the only one that's really the big savings. Everything else is just submitting Kubernetes is hard, but you get that advantage both on Amazon and on Azure and on GKE. App migration on containers has always been easier. <laughs> Anything on containers is easier to move than a VM. Uh, and then there's a bunch of security stuff, which is just kind of garbage. Uh, but you know, I also want to know what uh, what security person was doing 96% of their time on waste and only you know got themselves 4% of their time back. Like, what are they doing now? Are they just drinking coffee, looking at screens, or, or what are they doing? Uh, well, anyways, you can check that out if you are interested in Forrester and you have a subscription. You can download this uh, and read the more details of what they have to say. Uh, I'm sure there's more to it than what's in the press release, but uh, I can only go what's on the press release for our listeners because. I don't assume you all have millions of dollars to pay Forrester every year for advice. Wow. We have to pay for these reports? I think Google's already paying I mean, We don't have to pay for them. But if you, <laughs> if you are a Forrester or a Gartner customer, you can pay for uh, their analysis and in-depth analysis, and they'll walk you through the whole methodology that they use uh, to make these reports and assumptions and baseline. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to the lightning round. Oh, actually, are we not doing lightning round today? What are we doing? Are, we, are, you, are you quizzing Ian for who's nerdiest? No, nah, I won't quiz Ian. I, we, oh, okay. I didn't, we didn't prepare. It would be unfair. Well, it's unfair. Yes. Well, I mean, you guys are naturally nerdy on your own, but that's okay. Yeah. I, I, no, I don't remember what that what that comment was about now on Twitter. The uh, the nerdy thing. It was. Uh, I don't know either. Oh, it was the the, the bias. And it was, somebody wanted to. Yeah, Windows calls. Now, 
you know, it says to me about bias interrupts and whatever else. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, way too nerdy. I'm not gonna. Yeah, that can all that can all get snipped out. <laughs> yeah, you you lost me a bias interrupt. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. All right. Uh, well, let's do lightning round then. Uh, Jonathan, you want to take us through it, or would you like me to take us through it? I will happily read through the lightning round. Awesome. Uh, remember, this is more difficult than you think it is. <laughs> I don't. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have the advantage. I mean, Peter makes it look so easy. That's the. I have the advantage of having read through these in advance. Yeah, well, mm. that, you think we all would have that advantage, but the reality is that is not the case always. <laughs> <laughs> all right. AWS Cloud Map supports editing custom service instance attributes in the AWS console. Hey, consoles. Uh, give me an API or give me death. <laughs> <laughs> New AWS public data sets are available from Ford, NASA, and NREL. Is that a Ford crash test rating data, or is it something more boring? Uh, hmm. The Ford Multi-AV seasonal data set from the Ford Motor Company. I don't know what that is, so clearly not exciting. <sighs> oh, it's a data collected from a seasonal data set collected by a fleet of Ford autonomous vehicles at different days and times during 2017 to 2018. Uh, the vehicles were manually driven on average route of 66 kilometers in Michigan that included a mix of driving scenarios like the Detroit airport, freeways, city centers, university campus, and suburban neighborhood. So if you were trying to make a machine learning model for driving a car in Michigan, this is your data set. Wow. Especially if you wanted to drive that car three years ago. <laughs> yes, exactly. I took a look at that NASA data set as well, uh, uh, Landsat 8 data set. Um, Ooh, that's a good data set, actually. <laughs> yeah, you could get uh, satellite imagery of the, the fires over here in Australia during, um, during the really bad times. Um, so that's really interesting to look at uh, if you get a chance. Fascinating. That's actually a good one. I will check that one out. AWS Elastic Beanstalk adds support for Windows Server 2019 and .NET Core 3.1. Hey, that public roadmap coming through once again. They really showed a lot of stuff on that roadmap that they just just announcing week after week. Like, we're going to make a public roadmap, and then we're going to deliver everything on the roadmap, and then there'll be nothing left. And we'll all be like, what's on the roadmap? Nothing. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's Beanstalk. It's, it's must, it must be like the, the marketing guys, like to-do list, basically. Oh, I, well, I, I, did, I think I told you guys on the show before that uh, I had tweeted at them that I would love a organization's public roadmap. Uh, they tweeted back at me today and said, sorry, we have no plan to do an organization public roadmap. So I'm sad. Yeah. That's... Uh... <sighs> I, I was even like super nice to them in my tweet. I was like, hey, you like these? I like these. Let's do this. And they're like, let's, let's let the product team know. And they came back and said, product team said no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Git has enough storage for the public roadmap. We've been waiting for organization features for so long. And it's probably an infinitely long list right by now. Yeah. It just really sucks because most of the stuff that they're Sherlocking is stuff that I would like to build on organizations or want to use organizations for. And just it's a bummer. AWS Control Tower introduces lifecycle event notifications. The service that no one can use, unless you start it out with it. Great. Ah, that's right. The lifecycle yeah. is uh, not for us. Yep, that's right. You can't migrate into Control Tower. You cannot. Terrible decision. Terrible. I guess they think that they're going to get a, a whole lot more new business than they already have existing business, which is uh, good for the financials. AWS Certificate Manager Private Certificate Authority now offers CloudFormation resources. The easiest way to get $400 a month automated. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Is it only $400 a month now? Wow, they've, they've lowered that price since, since launch. <laughs> well, which you only get billed on on the last day of the month. So you go from zero to 400 So those budget alerts do not work. <laughs> Wow. I actually I hate budget alerts uh, <laughs> because I have for the cloud bot we have we have one server because we're cheap and uh, I it's an RI server and so I basically know that you know it's cost me you know seventy dollars a month to run the server and but every day on the third every month when it crosses the third I get this note saying you're gonna be over your budget of sixty seven dollars. Uh, because the discount doesn't come in until the last day of the month. <laughs> so it's projecting me to be spending, you know, $245, which is the price of it without the uh, RIs. And, uh, you know, it's just like, what? what's the point of this service if you can't even tell that there's an RI applied to it? So, anyways, sorry. Rant up my budgets. I got to deduct a point for uh, rambling. Sorry. Oh, hang on. Oh, no, you do have one point. I was going to say I couldn't deduct any, but you do have one point so far. I could go, I could go negative. Possible. You could. That would be uh, an abuse of power, though, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've lost my place. 
AWS OpsWorks for Chef Automate now supports in-place upgrade to Chef Automate 2. I mean, it, it makes sense that a automation infrastructure as code solution could upgrade itself. <laughs> like, what a weird announcement. <laughs> Actually, and uh, I realized today that I have no idea what the Chef product line looks like these days because I didn't know what Chef Automate was. Uh, I know what, and then apparently they've renamed a lot of stuff. Like, Chef Infra is what I know as Chef. And then Inspect is apparently now its own product. It used to just be part of Chef Infra. And then Habitat, which is the thing that no one, no one that I know actually uses. And then apparently Chef Automate provides operational visibility and organizational collaboration for everything you automate, which is nothing. So I don't know what that means. But yeah, there. Anyways. Mm -hmm. I always like the idea of Habitat, but again, you, you lock yourself into something like that and you're so uh, restricted on what you can do. I mean, if you wanted to treat your easy two instances like containers, I think Habitat's kind of interesting. Like Beanstalk, yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, <laughs> but if you're going to go all that work of doing that in Habitat, why not just run a container? Uh, it's a little, little late, I think, to market on that one. Yep. And finally, Amazon RDS for MySQL supports authentication with Active Directory. Which who which .NET developer uses MySQL? <laughs> the Microsoft police are coming for them. There will be an audit, and if they don't comply, they will send Oracle in too. Because they're partners. More importantly, who gives random numbers of hundreds of thousands of people access to, to databases to query just just ad hoc like that? Uh, I don't know. The answer is Amazon RDS do. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so. And that is the end of the lightning round. And I will award the points to nobody this week. Maybe we, maybe we should just stop scoring the lightning round. I think that might be the solution to this problem. I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Nil point, as they say in uh, French tennis matches. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, speaking of the lightning round, we uh, on our Slack channel, we asked some questions, and we got a little bit of feedback that people don't actually enjoy the lightning round. And if you are out there and you don't like it, or you do like it, uh, we would love to actually know what you think of it, because uh, we could kill it. We, we, don't, we don't mind. It's, it's world famous, but uh, we, we don't mind going away with it, or at least maybe reducing its frequency. Um, and substituting something else here in this place. So if you have feedback on that or you have an opinion, uh, we would love to hear from you on our website, thecloudpod.net, which I just refreshed. Uh, so if you've been there a while, it has some updates to it. Uh, but you can send us a contact form and uh, say, hey, I love Lightning Round, or no, please kill it. It's the worst thing ever. Uh, we would love to know what you think uh, at a wider audience if you're not on our Slack channel. Ian, what do you want to talk about? Uh, would you like to tell us about all the amazing things you did in Former 2 since uh, you were here with us in April? Yeah, so uh, we had... Uh, import support come in. Um, that was I uh, got that on day one, which is really interesting. Um, at reInvent, I talked to the uh, CloudFormation team and like, so how did you get that in? It's like, yeah, you're, uh, the API docs leaked a day early. So <laughs> I spent a night previously coding that up, and yeah, that's, that's in now. So you can now import directly from Forma 2 into a new stack, um, which is a feature I almost designed it for, to be honest. So that's really good that that's there. As a, uh, as a guy who is intimately familiar with CloudFormation and Terraform, uh, I'd love to get your opinion on CDK. Ah, CDK. That's an interesting one. I like the idea of CDK. I don't like the fact that their opinions is set on us in such a strict way. Uh, I would like to see something like versioned high-level resources. So opinions that do change over time, for example the CA certificate identifier in RDS, which everyone has had to update recently, um, can be changed and people can opt in or opt out of that sort of uh, change as they need to. It's not really strictly defined. Um, those are the sort of changes I'd like to see in there, but we, we have some people using it. Um, I'm still a, a traditionalist. I'm still using raw CloudFormation, but yeah, I think it's an opinionated thing. I think it's a good tool for the community. It seems like people have been kind of going through its own stages of grief on it, you know, denial that it's better than finally acceptance and or maybe reluctant acceptance. I don't, I'm not really sure where it's at in the hype cycle, but it, I've been watching the Twitter, the Twitter sphere kind of go back and forth on CDK for a bit. And uh, I've also heard uh, Ben Kehoe rant about it quite a bit <laughs> in person, uh, which is always a fun conversation too. So uh, it's definitely uh, – Got some opinions, <laughs> positive and negative about it, which is uh, interesting. It's definitely gaining some community support now. There's some um, sort of libraries of uh, you know good CDK patterns floating around now, which is which is kind of cool. But don't forget, Ian, don't forget uh, the CLI uh, for Forma Two now. Oh yes, um, so yeah, Forma Two 
by an issue that got raised. Um, someone wanted this in CLI form, and because it was in JavaScript, I could just chuck it into a Node project and let that work. So you can now automate um, retrieval of all your resources with a search filter. Um, and I've seen people use this for sort of a regular audit. I've seen someone put in a GitHub action and regularly audit their own um, infrastructure to look for changes. So that's an interesting use case, which I never actually anticipated, but yeah, that's what people are using it for. That's actually really cool. Well, uh, I swear you stalked me on the internet on the internet because I like I, I'm moving to Visual Studio Code uh, this year uh, as one of my personal goals to get off of Sublime Text because I really like a lot of the Visual Studio Code stuff better. Uh, and I was adding in my plugins and I found your CloudFormation linter. <laughs> so I was like, oh, Ian's chasing me across my computer now uh, between <laughs> Twitter and and now this. So it's always good to have you on the show. I always appreciate uh, your insights and uh, what you're doing for us in the CloudFormation Terraform world is super helpful. So again, thank you very much. I know we had you on last year and we've uh, mentioned you several times on the show as we uh, are big fans of your CloudFormer too. So thank you very much for that uh, hard work that you put into it. Cool. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Uh, how would uh, they follow you on Twitter if they want to be stalked by Ian as well? Uh, my handle is IANN0036 um, on Twitter, on GitHub, on LinkedIn, if you so desire. <laughs> Uh, LinkedIn. Uh. Or you can find us on any of the Slack channels. All the yes, time. all the time. <laughs> all right, good. Well, thank you again, Ian, for coming. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, we always appreciate when guests come on and do that. So uh, definitely ping us anytime you want to come on the show, uh, with Peter or without Peter. Uh, we'd love to have you on again. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. And uh, Jonathan, I'll see you later this week. Yep. Will do. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Justin. Bye. That is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at hashtag thecloudpod.